What's up everybody, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and these are five highlights from 2023. Number five, we release a critical and important curriculum for parents to talk to their teens about gender and sexuality in partnership with Access. This curriculum has reached thousands of parents across the country and helped them have better conversations with their teens about gender and sexuality. Number four, we released a mini doc telling my story and the G3 Project story earlier this year and it's reached thousands of people across the globe. Number three, Courageous Conversations 2023 was an amazing success, our best year yet. Um, this year, we focus on how to reconstruct after deconstructing your faith. And we have so many testimonies of countless people that have been blessed by Courageous Conversations in person and virtually and continue to be blessed through our on-demand option. Number two, as you know, we released our Juneteenth documentary last year, but this year it got picked up by PBS and was available in millions of homes across the country on Juneteenth of this year. That is so amazing, God is so good. And number one, I am so excited that our Unspoken documentary was picked up by Tubi this year, so it's available free to anyone who wants to watch it and reaches our target audience of skeptics who are struggling with this idea that Christianity is a white man's religion. And that's not all. This month, it was picked up by Fox Soul and aired on national television for the first time, available in millions of homes across the world. We could not do what we do at the Jew 3 Project without you. We have so much lined up next year. I have a book coming out next year that I'm excited to tell y'all about, When Faith Disappoints. Uh, the gap between what we believe and what we experience. And there's so much more that we have lined up for 2024. The amazing thing about 2024 is our 10 year anniversary. Jude 3 turns 10, 2024. And so we want to encourage you to stay tuned to all of our socials, subscribe to our newsletter for the exciting things we have coming up in 2024. Thank you for helping us reach these milestones this year. And if you want to continue to help the mission and vision of the Jude 3 Project and help us finish this year strong, or if you see this in the new year, um, to help us continue the work we do for the Jude 3 Project, you can give online at jude3project.org backslash donate. You have the option to give online or there's an address to mail your check in person. Every gift you give helps equip. We could not do what we do without you. So thank you. We appreciate you and more to come. Grace and peace and God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And I'm so excited for our first episode of the podcast for the year. Uh, we've been on a bit of a hiatus uh, because I was in a intense book writing project that I had to get done. Uh, but I'm so glad to be back with uh, an amazing guest. I'm not in studio today, as y'all can see. I'm in my, my home office, uh, but uh, I'm excited to have uh, Walter Kim with us. Welcome, Walter. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for the privilege of being on with you. Well, Dr. Walter Kim, uh, I know you don't you often use that, but I think it's important for the discussion today. Tell our audience just a little bit about you and your background. Yeah. So um, I came to faith in high school. 
Uh, and from that point on, uh, not only had this kind of internal transformation, it was a pretty stark uh, mm. infilling of God's spirit that changed my life. Uh, but it was my mind that needed a lot of catching up over the years. I had that kind mm -hmm. of heart transformation, uh, but wanted to really explore, is, is there a good reason for that heart transformation? Is it trustworthy? Um, and that led to various types of studies. Uh, so you mentioned uh, the doctorate. I, I ended up getting a doctorate in ancient Near Eastern languages and civilizations. Um, and have, uh, over the years, had opportunities to pastor in a variety of settings, both in campus ministry, uh, but in the local church setting, and currently serve as president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Yeah, um, and I love, uh, I didn't know that about you when I first met you, that you had your PhD um, in uh in in your focus, and then you got it from uh, Harvard. So that's it. Uh, impressive. Uh, being someone that um, has waded in uh, academic waters a bit, uh, you got your PhD from Harvard, and I can imagine as a Christian or Orthodox Christian, was that challenging at all for you? Yeah, Lisa, that's a great question. Um, and that actually came up uh, in conversation with some folks that, as I was beginning the program, uh, Christians who asked that question of, are, are you concerned about your faith? Mm -hmm. And um, a couple of things came to mind. Uh, one is, well, God is big enough to navigate whatever questions will come up. Mm -hmm. And uh, secondly, that um, all truth is God's truth wherever it may be learned. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be a need for a spirit of discernment, uh, whether I'm learning it in the halls of Harvard or in the pew of a church or in the privacy of my own study or in, you know, a, a seminary. Th these are all places that um, still require God's spirit to give you discernment as to what is true. Um, so this, this deep confidence that God is big enough for all our questions and um, that God is good enough to give us discernment. Um, that really uh, gave me a, a great amount of, of um, assurance going in. And, and I'd have to say, coming out on the other side, um, of course there were things that challenged my faith. Of course there were things that remained unanswerable. How am I going to put all those pieces together? But in the end, I would have to say, my time at Harvard very much strengthened my faith, strengthened my faith in the God who reveals himself, uh, in some really magnificent and creative ways. Yeah, I love that because I have, I felt felt the same way about my undergrad studying at the University of North Florida, studying religion and New Testament. Uh, you get you're not getting a Christian perspective, and so it kind of makes you think outside of the box you've been in, and it stretches you in ways that you wouldn't have been stretched if you were just in the kind of a Christian bubble learning these things. And so I'm appreciative because I could see things from a different perspective and my faith is strengthened. I always say a faith that can't be uh, tested, can't be trusted. Hmm. And so even when I was in class and someone was like, well, you're having a hard time in these classes. You might as well just drop it. You don't even need it to graduate. Cause at that time I was an investment finance major, so I didn't need it. Um, but I felt like if I dropped it, then I would always be questioning. Like there would always be kind of a gap in my faith. Like my faith couldn't handle this. And so I, I appreciate what you said. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to be talking about the Genesis account. 
Uh, I first really heard about things like the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, in undergrad, in class. Uh, I think it was my philosophy class, actually, first, where we first started grappling with that. And my professor challenged uh, Christians in the room on that. Um, So when we think about the Genesis account and this whole idea of Genesis copying from other other um, stories out there. Um, what are some other ancient creation stories that predate the the Genesis account we have that might cause people to challenge or think, mm, should I trust what we're what we're getting in the Bible? Mm, yeah, there are there are a lot, um, and in part, mm-hmm. I would have to say. The the urge to figure out the big questions of life, who are we, where do we fit in the universe, is there a God, how are we to relate, um, every society asks that question. So we should probably have a default expectation that um, all the societies of the ancient world probably have some creation type of narrative. And that is, in fact, the case. There's the Epic of Gilgamesh that covers issues connected to creation, but particularly the um, uh, the flood. And uh, you also have Atrahasis, uh, Adapa. Uh, then in the world of Egypt, you have uh, the Book of Newt. Uh, you have the accounts of how uh, within the kind of area of Israel, how the god Baal interacts with the other gods and goddesses and humanity. Um, So those accounts exist all throughout the ancient Near East. And there are a number of features that bear similarities as well as differences uh, to the biblical account. And that raises up questions of, you know, did the Bible just copy what was happening elsewhere? And then what makes it unique? And then how can we trust this revelation versus other accounts? Um, These are really big questions I imagine we're going to be exploring a bit of. Yeah, yeah. I I think because the the tendency is to think, well, because these predate the Genesis story, the Genesis story isn't true. Because what came first is actually true. Is that what you're seeing sometimes in the, the conflict versus when people are wrestling with Genesis? Yeah, I think they they come in those forms, you know. Mm-hmm. Can I trust this is fundamentally um the bottom line question. But that bottom line question has like subset questions of can mm-hmm. I trust this because it really seems like it's just copying or can I trust this because if others pagan nations are coming up with the same things, then why is this any different? Can I trust this in the plurality of religious options that exist now, that plurality existed then, and maybe it's just a matter of circumstance that it ended up being the biblical faith that won out. So mm-hmm. why should my faith as a Christian be any different than a faith as a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist? It just so happened that I grew up in a Christian household, so that's the story I was told. So there are all sorts of kind of variations uh, mm-hmm. to the question of, can this be trusted? Mm-hmm. How do the themes and narratives in Genesis, um, in the Genesis creation story compare to those in ancient, in other ancient stories that you've already mentioned? Yeah, I think one of the um, big sets of questions deal with what is the nature of the relationship 
between God or the gods, the pantheon, and humanity? So that's that's kind of one question. The second question is, um, well, you know, how how did humanity come to be, and what's its purpose? You know, that's another kind of question. Uh, the third type of question I would imagine is just how is the universe put together? How, how do pieces fit together? And um, I would say that uh, when you look at the biblical account, there are certainly features in which it shares elements of um the ancient Near East, in the way that it tells the story, in the kind of language, in the notions of uh, of a garden or the gods speaking to humanity. Um, but those similarities, in my estimation, um, while they exist, they represent just the common way of speaking and telling stories, uh, mm -hmm. common imagery that exists for telling stories. And we, we have that even today of you know, light and darkness and certain themes that just make sense for mm -hmm. how we would tell a story of what, where truth and what metaphors that we use to express truth. But what strikes me is the differences. And mm -hmm. I'll give you a few examples. So um, in the epic called Enuma uh, Elish, which um, tells the story uh, of a version that was uh, in Babylon, uh, the god Marduk was in war with the other gods and goddesses. And creation came out of warfare between the gods and goddesses. The defeat of uh, this one kind of water deity, Tiamat, uh, resulted in Tiamat being split up uh, with by Marduk, the victor, and the different elements of creation came into existence. Mm -hmm. In that worldview, creation is a product of violence, violent conflict among the gods. In the biblical worldview, there is no battle. There is a divine word. And that word is not an act of violence. It's an act of um, peace, peaceful creation, of power, mm -hmm. of blessing. It ends with, um, you know, not a war between the moon god and goddess and the star gods and goddesses, the water goddess and, and the high god, you know, Yahweh. It, it's God creating and saying it is good. You look at the epic called Atrahasis, and how was humanity created in that epic? Uh, humanity was created because um, there were the junior gods who had to serve the senior gods, and they got to the point of saying, hey, we're all gods. You know, why, why should we be doing this work? And they came up with the, the idea, well, let's create humans to do the work that we don't need to do. We don't want to do. Uh, what what is being said by that worldview that humanity is an afterthought, that humanity is a product of um, re really enslavement in some form uh, of the junior gods of saying, this is the work we don't want to do. As opposed to in the biblical narrative, humanity is the capstone of creation where God seeks to express not, this is the work that I don't want to do, but the work of creation I'm actually inviting you into to be my partner in the creation of uh, the cosmos. Uh, and that's an extraordinary affirmation of human dignity. Um, th those things speak to some things that are common, but I actually think the differences are quite compelling uh, for what is being presented. And, and 
And that's why in the end, I, I look at this, and wow, this, this really speaks to a revelation. Wh where would you get the idea when the common ideas are one of human identity uh, in this particular way of service to the gods as an afterthought, or that the cosmos came together as acts of violence and conflict? Where do you get the idea uh, of human dignity? Where do you get the idea of divine goodness and power speaking creation? And then this idea of joint collaboration between God and humanity. These, these are powerful notions. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's super helpful and powerful. Um, when we think about uh, Egypt and how they were thinking about uh, creation, can you lean into that a little bit? Because I know our audience, um, there are many people, in, especially in the African-American community, that have kind of leaned into Kemeticism or ancient Egypt um, as a source for spiritual connection. And so I would, I think it might be helpful for our audience to kind of be thinking through kind of the similarities and differences between how Egyptian was, the Egyptian, ancient Egyptian world was thinking about creation. Yeah. So um, there is some similarity with this notion of kind of the firmament. You get that story in Genesis that there is the kind of the firmament above and the firmament below. Uh, and that the earth is situated in something of this middle enveloped mm. by there, there's in the cosmology of Egypt uh, and the cosmology or by that, I mean the, the way that the cosmos is put together, how we understand that some similarities um, even within Egypt, though, there's great diversity in how the Egyptians held the creation account, whether you're in, you know, Thebes or Memphis or other aspects. But let's say there is this kind of notion that is shared. There, there's also strong themes of wisdom uh, that exists in uh, Egyptian religion. And that notion of wisdom is drawn upon, uh, connects deeply with uh, the Bible as well. In fact, there are a number of proverbs uh, in the book of Proverbs, the biblical book of Proverbs, that are Egyptian proverbs that have been repurposed and reset into the book uh, of Proverbs, the biblical book. So um, there is a, a kind of some shared cosmology, uh, a deeply shared understanding of wisdom. But once mm -hmm. again, I think there is a profound difference in the fact that there is one God who speaks humanity into existence and has a particular covenantal relationship with that humanity, as opposed to a pantheon of gods that are working either in conflict or collaboration with one another. And that the source of wisdom, uh, then while there are elements and observations of wisdom that is shared in the Bible and Egypt, uh, the source of wisdom though is profoundly different between a covenant-making God that intervenes in history in acts like the Exodus or ultimately in the cross to change the course of history. Um, it's not simply a philosophical way of understanding how the universe is put together, but a deeply incarnational way of the God who acts. And that incarnation is not simply what happened in the person of Jesus, of, of course, ultimately in the person of Jesus, but God shows up 
in the Old Testament in some very, very powerful ways, um, embodied uh, ways, uh, whether it's in the physicality of the temple or the representation and kind of a typology that exists in various kings and prophets uh, and priests in the Old Testament. There, again, there are some things that are similar to Egypt, um, but some profound differences, particularly in the areas of covenant, that God would make a covenant with humanity, and that God actually steps in to our physical world and interacts with us in these ways, and that the universe is um, ruled by a sovereign king, not the conflicts and collaborations of various powers. Um, and that leads to the kind of confidence that Christians have in a biblical faith, that there is a God who is overall, um, not a series of gods who we have to go to for different types of things and mm -hmm. have to navigate how can we make sure that we don't displease one god or goddess at the expense of another and create problems in our lives. Um, is, is a very different um, way of navigating the universe uh, when you think of the biblical faith and the faiths that exist around. But I do want to be careful in, in saying um, there are elements of truthfulness to be found anywhere because of the goodness of God, that God loves all of humanity. Uh, and there are rays of light that God would give to all people uh, with the hopes that they would follow that ray to the ultimate source of the light uh, found in Jesus. No, that's that's super helpful. And I love how you said you said this at the beginning. And I, I've heard this several times uh, over the course of my apologetics space, all truth is God's truth. And I think that's important when you highlight it, like there are some proverbs that are repurposed and some might hear that and be like, well, what, what is that about? Should we trust what Solomon is writing? If he's kind of copying from Egyptian thought for these proverbs, but it, it shows that all truth is God's truth and people that don't actually walk with God are capable of understanding parts of truth and, and are able to highlight that to the world. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important even today. I think even when we think about, you know, we do courageous conversations and you do a lot of bridge building work yourself mm -hmm. to see that sometimes your opposition has elements of truth that you need to hear adhere to and adopt. Yeah. Um, even when it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily in your camp. Uh, and so uh, just a bit of practical application that I was thinking yeah. of as, as you were saying that, um, that could be helpful for how we interact with people today. Yeah, that's so good. Um, when we think about um, the Genesis account um, and the creation, uh, that is just really hard. As you, as you think about it and you're in school, I'm thinking about a college student that's grown up hearing the Genesis account and then they're in the college course and they're like thinking about science and thinking about like, what is this actual literal six days or is it's time the, the days represent how would, how would, how in, in that time, how would people be thinking about that story? Because how we hear it, now, I think it's different than how they would be thinking about it. Um, 
kind of put us in the mind of those who would hear the Genesis account then versus how we hear it now, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, when you have a person that loves poetry, that's just a creative person, an artistic person, they view the world, they look at the world through certain lenses. They interact with the world poetically. They think in metaphors, they think uh, in colors, they think in words that are compelling, um, sounds, uh, you know, there's a musicality to the universe. If they were to write the story of the universe's beginning, they would write it in a certain way. Um, I think of C.S. Lewis as a wonderful example of that. Uh, when he wrote about how Narnia and the world of Narnia began, he wrote about it in a certain way, and it did not read like a scientific journal. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a scientist, of course, you're going to be asking and looking at the world in a certain way, and you will read and write a scientific journal. So you're right. You know, Your question gets at to how does not only a person, but a society or a culture or a people or a time period, how do they produce literature that's really compelling? Um, when you go back to the ancient world, uh, you know, th- no one was writing a scientific manual in any fashion that would look like or um, resonate with a modern scientific worldview. They had different understandings about how to tell story. Um, They had a very refined sense of the language of poetry and in oral cultures where you're sitting around the campfire, telling the family story, telling the story of your nation, your people, you, you learn to tell stories and accounts in certain ways. Right. And, um, and so the biblical account is a way of telling stories. There's a deep poetry to it. There's a deep set of metaphors, uh, the use of the, the imagery of water, as this kind of chaos, that would make sense in a time where if you send a small ship to go out onto the Mediterranean Sea, you're always going to do that with trepidation. Will they come back? Will a storm hit? I think about Jesus and his disciples. This was just this little lake of, you know, Sea of Galilee. And it was terrifying that all of a sudden what was calm became tumultuous and every disciple thought they were going to die. And Jesus, don't you care? Right? Well, in the ancient world, um, there are certain things, certain resonances of the ways that the world you interacted with it. So that's one. Why does the story read the way it reads? Is because there is a deep impulse of telling the stories poetically. If it was worth telling, it was that important, you would tell it in the forms of poetry. Secondly, the kinds of questions that they were concerned were more political than they were scientific. They weren't so concerned about issues of cellular transformations. You know, how did this actually work on the cellular level? How does DNA get transferred? You know, what changes here? The questions that arise to us about evolution and observations about the world, that, that wasn't of a concern. The real concerns were, are there other gods? Are those gods warring with each other? How, as a human, Am I to navigate the wars between the gods and their relationship with humanity? And when, when God tells the story of creation the way that he does, you know, why the moon 
you know, the sun, the stars? Why, why talk about it in that way? Why talk about vegetation in that way? Why talk about the sea and chaos in that way that the spirit hovered over? What God was doing was allaying the concerns that there is a world of chaos, that chaos is a product of the gods and goddesses at war with one another, and I should live in constant insecurity because I don't know if someone's going to be mad at me and I don't know to how to navigate that relationship. And so it was being told in a way to assure people there is a God who is good, who is in control, and doesn't think of you as an afterthought. But you are, as the Proverbs would kind of pick up this theme, the apple in his eye. You, you are the beloved. Um, and then lastly, you know, there was royal I ideology that was deeply connected with religion. And so um, I refer to Marduk, uh, the high god uh, of Babylon, that uh, was in the story of Enuma Elish. Well, that wasn't just a creation account of how the universe was put together. Toward the end, it became uh, royal propaganda. Uh, just like Marduk won, and he's the god of Babylon, so too the king of Babylon should be in control of everything. So it became royal ideology. That religious ideology became royal ideology. Um, you notice what happens here is not a particular king gets crowned at the end of the story in Genesis 1. It's humanity itself that gets crowned. That's an extraordinarily powerful statement that this is the royal ideology connected to the religious ideology of Genesis 1 is that all humans, not just one king sitting on the throne who happens to be in power and one city who happens to be in control, it is all humanity seeking to work together in a garden called earth to cultivate it together. That is really powerful. And any reader uh, in ancient Israel who got that story of Genesis 1 and 2 would, would get it. I mean, they would read it and they would get it and say, this, this is unlike anything I could imagine or have heard my neighbors tell me about how the world has come together and what my place in it is like. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine a, a level of hope um, and identity wrong when they read that story. Because when we read it and we're not looking at it the way it's intended to be read, if we're thinking this is a history book and I don't want to take away, strip the, when I say history, I'm not, when I'm saying it's not a history book, I'm not saying that it's not true. But I'm saying the the way it's written is different than reading a history book. It's, and that's important for how you read it, because then when you try to ex impose our scientific method on it uh, to or try to understand the dating of the earth, you might end up with a lot more questions <laughs> than saying, OK, this is kind of poetic in nature. Hmm. And and how does that shape how I read it? Because we don't read the Psalms like we read the epistles right. because we understand the genres are different. And so I think that helps um, us see the creation story in a different way 
Um, but it doesn't strip truth from it. I think mm-hmm. when you say something is poetic in nature, people start to think, well, this is not true. How how do, for those who are wrestling with that tension, what, what would you say to them? Yeah. Well, first of all, that God, God could create everything in six literal days. He has the power to do that. Um, God can create the universe uh, to be the way that it is. Uh, instantaneously, he he has that power, and God did create. Um, the The mechanisms by which that creation doesn't seem that th- that creation happened doesn't seem to be the main point of Genesis one. The main point mm-hmm. is, as I've been describing, kind of, are there many gods at war at, with one another, and is the universe fundamentally an unsafe place? What is my place in it? Is there a divide between those who sit on the throne and the rest of humanity? Just like the junior God said, we're, we're, we're sick of working and serving the senior gods. Let's make humanity. Is that how the universe functions? Or is there a benevolent, loving God who looks at me? That, you know, that's the main point of, of Genesis and, and that God got the whole thing together, however he got it. So, so the two things that I would say is one, yes, of course, God can create in any way possible. But the invitation here is like a love letter um, to read it carefully, to read it as it's intended to be read, uh, to read it with curiosity. Uh, And so I I look at this as, okay, on the one hand, it could be challenging and raise all sorts of questions. But rather than look at the challenge and the questions of, "I I was never taught to read the Bible this way, as off-putting, I actually think this is an opportunity to be invited, to enter in with you know new curiosity of maybe God is saying more, not less, but maybe God is saying more than what I ever imagined. Um, and so, uh, yes, those questions are real. I, want, I don't want to diminish that the questions still remain of, okay, so how does science actually relate to this? Because I live in a world steeped in science. So I still, those questions I can't run away from. Um, it's also the question of, are the ways that I've been taught to read the Bible, um, you know, do I need to question them? And that can be unsettling. Um, and then lastly, where do I go? Where do I go to learn how to read the Bible? And that's where I would say, rather than detaching ourselves from community and thinking, I'm just going to go off and figure it out myself, Um, It is a call to enter into community, to work with one another, to see our own blind spots, to learn from people who are different from us. Uh, And in that process, to trust that God is actually in that uh, and that as we express the humility, the curiosity, uh, the mutual submission to one another and learning, um, that there's some beautiful truth that comes out of that. We think about the creation story, one of the pillar uh, components to our Christian life is the creation of humanity and the fall of man and the story of the garden. Mm. Uh, how should we be viewing that story in light of how the ancient Near East would have been hearing that story? Yeah. Um, in light of what you just said, how should yeah. you, cause that, that's, I think that's the natural progression. Okay. I can understand the, the, the sign, how this, creation story, how it kind of happened, but the creation of man is so critical to how we understand our identity, the fall, all of those things. Yeah. 
Um, I keep on coming back to this because I think it's this central. And one is to understand that humanity is beloved by God. Mm -hmm. And that just would stick out here. The God who is in control of all things did not create humanity as an afterthought, did not create humanity to take care of the drudgery uh, of the universe, but created humanity as um, an expression of uh, love and goodness and seeks to put humanity in a place of beauty, truth, and goodness. That, that is absolutely vital. The second thing I, I would say is um, in a world in which there were incredible disparities, socioeconomically, politically, in a world that was um, constantly uh, at war between various uh, kingdoms. I mean, think about where Israel is located in the ancient world. And this is true even in the modern world. That strip of land has been conquered time and time again because the Hittite kingdom to get to the Egyptians, the Hittites in the north to get to the Egyptians in the south, they would have to go through that parcel of land. For the Persians in the east to get to the Greeks in the west, they would have to go through that land. It was, it was a place that was constantly contested. So, you know, when God creates humanity and dignifies all of humanity with his image, not just the king, but all of humanity, that's an incredibly powerful statement. It's a prophetic statement that those who life has pushed to the margins, the oppressed, those who are without kingdoms or being conquered by other kingdoms, they have equal dignity. They are created in God's image. That's extraordinary. In the ancient world, typically only the king was created in God's image. Everyone else bore the image of the king at best. Um, and so to say that we were all royalty is extraordinary statement. Um, so I, I want to you know, reiterate, it is the incredible love of God that shows up in the story that it's the remarkable ways in which um, God democratizes his grace to all people uh, that are essential to the creation story. Um, and that out of that beauty and blessing, humanity was given the choice to reciprocate in love uh, or to pursue its own way. And we know that the story goes in that ladder. Uh, and the, the the sorrow of humanity that comes about because of the sin of humanity uh, is the rest of the story that scripture speaks to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's no, that's super, super, super helpful. I think encouraging to to people to know like this is a faith that gives us value. Uh, when we're talking about uh, poetry, and then when we get to the interaction between Adam and Eve in the garden. I guess someone who may be listening from a more critical sense will be like, okay, so if the creation maybe not have happened as literal days, did the fall actually happen as a literal event? Mm. Um, and so that I think, can you kind of lean into yeah. that for, for those who are listening, who are, that might give them pause or, or give them some, uh, a sense of, a fear of like the trustworthiness of 
the faith in the sense. Yeah, that, that, Lisa, that's a great question. Um, and that's where we look for clues in scripture mm-hmm. to help us to read scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, when Jesus uh, starts telling a parable, you know, scripture often will help us and say, well, then Jesus told a story. And mm-hmm. then you don't confuse what Jesus is doing there. You know, okay, oh, this mm-hmm. is this is a parable. It's telling a story. It, it didn't literally happen, uh, but we can imagine why he's illustrating his point. Um, and uh, and then the ways in which we pick up uh, how latter scripture interprets former scripture. So you know, did Adam and Eve exist? I think yes. Um, I think there was a sin, and I think uh, a fall. Uh, and the ways in which I would piece those things together are you read the Genesis account in chapters one and two, and then the fall that happens, and then the consequences of that in chapter three. Um, but then you go to the genealogy in Genesis chapter five. And um, genealogies itself have certain ways of being read, uh, but there's an intentionality within genealogies to situate the flesh and bloodness of a story. And so the genealogy that is being told with beginning with Adam and then going through Seth and um, it's starting to tell us that, okay, uh, there are poetic ways and elements, metaphorical ways and elements that the story might be being told in Genesis one. But as the story is being told, there are clues along the way of saying, wow, no, Adam is perceived to be a flesh and blood person in the same way that the other members of this genealogy are being perceived that way. So mm-hmm. even in the Genesis account, you, you get that sense uh, of the physicality of Adam and Eve uh, as, as actual people, not just metaphors. Um, and then Romans chapter five, when it talks about uh, in the New Testament and Epistles are the place that you've already alluded to this, you know, you read an epistle differently than you would read a psalm or, you know, a parable, a story. Uh, Romans chapter five is trying to make a point that there were two Adams and as real uh, as the second Adam's salvation is in forming a new humanity, it presumes the realness of the first Adam in the humanity that fell, that needed that saving from the second Adam. So I think I, I think there is kind of the weight of um, interpretation that would lean that way. Um, but to my brothers and sisters who would say, no, I still think it's metaphorical, and I would argue that it's metaphorical because of X, Y, or Z reason in, in reading Genesis 1 through 3, um, I would say, let's have that discussion. Um, to those brothers and sisters would say, now I still am committed to the six day, you know, young earth way of reading it and a very physical way of understanding the, the story of the, the creation of Adam and Eve. Let's have conversations. I, I myself tend to fall in this kind of more complex middle in which, yes, there were definite historic figures I, from my estimation and how this is picked up as a story, but that story was told not in a, journalistic New York Times way, and certainly not in a scientific, you know, science journal way. It was told in the storytelling way of the ancient Near East. So yes, history was being told, but history was being told in a certain way that even the later history, uh, when you get to first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, 
that has a different feel to it. Um, the ways that facts are being used, the way that details are being used, and the lack of a certain kind of poetry uh, that exists in Genesis chapter one that doesn't exist when uh, you know Bathsheba and uh, the story is being told. I mean, there's a certain concreteness uh, to the history of uh, later aspects of the Old Testament. So to, to me, it seems like there are clues in the Bible that helps us, uh, that help us understand how to read any one portion. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's super helpful. Cause as you said, I'm reading through Chronicles right now. I'm just crossing the second Chronicles. And so there's definitely a, a difference in the ways the story is being told. Um, is there anything as we wrap this up about the creation accounts, ancient Aries, that you think is important uh, for our audience to know before we before we end this interview? And also, what resources or what books have been helpful for you as you're understanding this that would be helpful books for, for those who are wrestling with the subject? Yeah. Um, I come back to what I think Genesis ultimately, no matter what the details are in your reading of it, what is the ultimate point of Genesis? And that God is in control. He can be trusted. He loves you. And he has a relationship that he seeks to foster with you. Those things mean that when you have questions, they're okay. They're okay to have. When you have doubts, they're okay. That God is not up there waiting to zap you, but he is seeking to invite you to bring your doubts, to bring your questions, uh, and to bring them to God, but to bring them in community. There's a reason why God said, Adam, it's not good that you are alone. You, you, you need to do this thing in community. Humanity is a community affair. Uh, and so don't take your questions into the dark closet of your room to hide but bring them out to the light of God's grace, but to the light of God's community as well. Um, I think John Walton has written a number of really helpful uh, works. Bruce Walke has also written a number of helpful works that um, explore uh, what has been done uh, in the book of Genesis. And I, I would begin with some of their works that are both in article form, uh, but also in commentaries, uh, as well as in longer book form. And, you know, if you Google them and uh, look up, those are some uh, interesting, good places to begin. Well, thank you, Walter. How can people get in touch with you uh, on social media? Yeah, well, I, I, I think, um, you know, check out uh, the NAE account. Um, I think that's the best place. Go to the NAE.org uh, website. You'll see the nature of our work. Uh, and you'll be able to um, you know, find ways of connecting to me there. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, for joining us. Thank you all for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at Jew3project.org or wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcast. You can watch all the episodes on our YouTube channel. Uh, and remember to help the mission and vision of Jew3 Project. You can give online at Jew3project.org backslash donate. As we say, every gift helps equip. We have merch online. Uh, we released a new winter collection for our listeners and lament legislate uh winter collection and that you can check out all of that is available on our website until next time grace and peace and god bless
Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.